In this final episode of the 2021-22 season, we're thrilled to bring you the discussion of Sunbelt Blues, The Failure of American Housing, a recent book by New Labor Forum editorial board member, Andrew Ross. In an interview with School of Labor and Urban Studies faculty member, James Rodriguez, Ross shares his firsthand account of the burgeoning and largely overlooked housing emergency in our nation's suburban and rural hinterland. Reporting from Florida's Osceola County, Ross describes families and people of all ages who cram themselves into dilapidated motels or literally pitch their tents in the woods. Adding to these dire circumstances, the people Ross comes to know find themselves also reckoning with psychological trauma, poverty, and nihilism. You won't want to miss this compelling interview that also examines the causes of this catastrophe in addition to suggesting what it will take to end it. I'm deeply honored to have the opportunity to introduce and be in conversation with our esteemed guest, Andrew Ross. Andrew Ross is a social activist and professor of social and cultural analysis at NYU, a contributor to The Guardian, The New York Times, The Nation, Art Forum, Jacobin, London Review of Books, and Al Jazeera. He is the author or editor of 25 books and more than 250 articles on a wide variety of topics, labor and work, urbanism, politics, technology, environmental justice, alternative economics, music, film, TV, art, architecture, and poetry. His articles have appeared in newspapers and magazines, as well as in academic and public interest journals. And his books are published by mainstream trade, academic, and independent presses. He has lectured at hundreds of universities and cultural institutions in North America, Europe, Asia, Latin America, the Middle East, and Australia. Politically active in many movement fields, he is the co-founder of several groups, Gulf Labor Artists Coalition, Global Ultra Luxury Faction, Coalition for Fair Labor, Occupy Student Debt Campaign, Strike Debt, The Debt Collective, and Decolonize This Place, and is an organizer with others, including the American Association of University Professors and the U.S. Academic and Cultural Boycott of Israel. I feel especially lucky to be moderating this event today because Andrew Ross is someone I've been learning from for nearly a decade, and not just through his numerous works and activism, but directly as an academic mentor, where Andrew Ross was a professor of mine as a graduate student at NYU. Actually, the first course I took with Andrew Ross was called Urban and Suburban Studies, which for me feels like a, a fitting full circle moment in discussing his latest book, Sunbelt Blues. I've had the pleasure of recently reading through this timely and important book, and it struck me on, on many levels and before we dig into some of those questions, I think it's really, in many ways, a searing portrait of the housing crisis, and in particular, the extent of the housing crisis in the United States, outside of some of the spaces that we maybe traditionally, especially in a city like New York, tend to focus in terms of large cities and metropolitan areas. So as I turn this over to Andrew, I want to ask, before we dig into some of the specifics covered in the book, um, can you give us an overview yourself of the text and maybe even a little bit about your experience researching and writing it, especially for folks who have yet to get their hands and eyes on it? Sure, James. It's a 
pleasure to be in dialogue with you. And thanks to SLU for hosting this. You know, as you mentioned, this is it's a book about this horrific uh, affordable housing crisis that we we become so familiar with. Unfortunately, this was a crisis that pre-existed the pandemic. Of course, it wasn't just national; it's also a global crisis. And it's now become an emergency in many ways. And that's, that's because, as I'm sure you all know, rents and prices have been skyrocketing in the course of the pandemic. That wasn't the case initially. When rents dropped in the first few months of lockdown, rents dropped in cities like uh, New York City and San Francisco. But since then, it's been you know, through the roof with some housing markets showing gains, year-on-year gains of up to 40%, which are you know, completely unparalleled. And no one could have predicted this, really. I think no one did predict it. So here we are. There are many symptoms of that predicament. I mean, one that I will mention, because obviously the impacts, as ever, are very uneven. Levels of Black home ownership in the U.S. have fallen back to where they were before the Fair Housing Act was passed in 1968, you know, which, which barred racial discrimination in the housing marketplace. So that's just one symptom of what's going on. So the book is not an analytical book uh, for the most part. I mean, I have some policy recommendations at the end, but it's, it's a book of reporting. And it's a book of reporting about the human experience of people, households in substandard housing conditions and experiencing homelessness. And it's set in Central Florida, in the poorest county in Central Florida, Osceola County, which is a kind of mix of urban, suburban, and rural, the kind of place that urbanists have a lot of trouble defining, (laughs) quite frankly. And Osceola County, at the time that I was reporting there, was number one in the country, the the most difficult place in the U.S. for low-income households to find affordable housing. And that said, I use it as a lens through which to look at the national crisis because there's nothing that I found there that you couldn't find in many parts of the country, especially in Sunbelt regions, which is why the book is called Sunbelt Blues. They tend to be fast growth, full of developer-friendly officials, rock-bottom wages, and a chronic lack of rent and housing regulation in general. So that's the kind of overview it's 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 a book about the human experience in a way and i i try to steer clear of some of the more analytic and theoretical issues and questions that come up for people although i think the book is aware of these and maybe that was your reading maybe it wasn't but i hope that the book is aware of those issues thank you andrew i certainly thought so and although you're framing the book quite rightly as not necessarily an analytical text. One of the many things I really did enjoy about this book is your analysis and your breakdown of the American housing crisis. And you just touched on a few of those pieces, but I'm wondering if maybe you could go into a few of those different components of that housing crisis that is affecting the U.S. as a whole and even parts of the global context, and especially how its geographic reach is moving beyond just major cities like New York and and San Francisco, but are also in rural and suburban spaces like, like in Central Florida. So could you give us a sense on how you understand that American housing crisis and how it's impacting non-urban regions like, like such? Yes. Yeah, you're right. The, the reach is quite extensive. And one of the reasons we don't know so much about that is that most of the media coverage tends to be of major urban centers 
you know, we all know the rent is too damn high in New York City and San Francisco and LA. That's where national journalists live. They tend to report in their backyards because they're in short deadlines. But the challenges are actually much greater if you go out beyond the urban fringe to places like Osceola County, where poverty levels have been rising most rapidly over the last 15 years or so. And you don't have to go far out of New York, upstate, to find a, a similar kind of predicament. So that's that's the reason that I chose to do the field research there. I'm also familiar with the region. I spent a year there 25 years ago writing a book about Disney's new town of celebration in that neck of the woods. As far as the, you know, the factors, the explanatory factors for the housing crisis, there's a lot of them that people cite. You know, the chronic shortage of housing supply, rising land prices, overly restrictive zoning, the impact of student debt as a barrier for home ownership, the fact that income gains haven't kept pace with the rising costs of public goods like healthcare and education and housing and transportation, and also the entry of Wall Street private equity firms into the housing market, which has been quite dramatic and it's you know, taking its toll on on rising prices. So these are some of the factors. It's a complex mix of all of these to some degree, in my view. There's also a lot of solutions out there that people talk about, whether they are market solutions, whether they're non-market solutions, whether they involve social fixes that, you know, include reparations for minority households that were hit very hard by the legacy of redlining. And of course, the housing justice movement has its own solutions. So these are some of the components, I think. And I was fairly agnostic going in to doing this reporting and this research. And I came out on the other end with some, you know, some conclusions that maybe we can talk about later. Absolutely. And I, I really appreciate that response because I feel like you you laid the groundwork for a few pieces that we'll touch on shortly, specifically employment and Disney in particular and the role of supply and demand around housing and also looking at policy solutions and, and housing organizing. But as you mentioned at the outset, this is in many ways primarily a book of reporting and of the human experiences of folks in Osceola County on Route 192 specifically and their impacts dealing with this crisis. So throughout the text, you speak with an array of different people caught up on one side or another of the housing crisis on Route 192, from unhoused folks, folks living long-term in motels, as well as landowners, property managers, and some state officials. So could you share a specific case study or two that felt either particularly striking for you or that maybe best illuminate or encapsulate the housing crisis gripping Central Florida right now or the U.S. as a whole? Yes, I can. There are low-end examples and there are high-end examples in the book. I actually, my point of entry was going back to Celebration, which is mm. a show piece of uh, New Urbanist Town, which is relatively affluent. I promised my neighbors 25 years ago I would return <laughs> after two decades. I did very dutifully. And I found that one of the big stories in town was that Disney had sold the town center to a private equity firm and a very murky sale, it should be said. And the private equity firm did what private equity has done to communities all across the country. I mean, they sold off some of the assets, they jacked up the rents, they drained off equity through refinancing, and they did a, a terrible job of maintaining the properties. So a lot of the housing units downtown were in a state of you know, distress 
And so I was able to report on that and also the efforts of some of the residents to fight back. I mean, they took on Wall Street, which is a good story in the book. It doesn't happen that often in the private equity realm. The other story which took me outside of town was I discovered that the high school was enrolling more homeless students than any other high school in Florida, which is kind of staggering if you consider that this is an affluent town. So I followed the students outside of, you know, uh, outside of celebration, found a lot of them living with their families in single rooms and dilapidated budget motels on on the commercial strip that uh, is the main drag in Osceola County. And there's a very broad spectrum of people living long-term in these motels. And again, this is not a local phenomenon. You can find actually millions of households across America living in motels on a long-term basis. It's become a default option for affordable housing for a lot of folks who are shut out of the rental and homeownership markets. And so I took up residence in, in the motels and, and got to know a lot of the long-term residents and their stories and also made a point of profiling a lot of the owners who become kind of reluctant landlords in a way and trying to get a sense, build up a picture of the economy of what it means to live in a motel because the the weekly and monthly rates are not all that different from market rental rates. They're slightly lower, but you don't have to pay first and last month's rent to get in and you don't have overheads. So that is what makes all the difference. That's the primary reason why so many people and most of them are employed who are, who are living in these places. That's the primary reason they're there. They just, the cash flow is so restricted so many households in the country that they don't have that lump sum that can get them into a market rental. So that said, if you're evicted from a motel like this, and during the pandemic, people living in motels were not protected by the eviction moratorium. So there was a a certain amount of eviction going on. If you are evicted, then you're likely to end up either in the streets or in the woods. I spent a lot of time visiting people in the woods in tent encampments. And again, we're very aware through media coverage of tent cities in in places like Skid Row and LA and other major urban centers. They get a lot of coverage. Tent encampments in the woods do not. These are the truly invisible homeless populations. And again, they're all across the country. Mostly they're just off commercial strips because people need access to services and goods and jobs. And although they're invisible, it's fairly easy to find them if you know where to look and where the, what the telltale signs are. So I spent a lot of time visiting in the woods, and I think that was the most revealing part of the reporting that I did. Just trying to get a sense of, I guess, what you could call the sociology of life in the woods. A lot of the encampments are very well organized. They have self-elected leaders. Some of them keep a, run a very tight ship. Some of them are organized by consumption choices, like their beer camps and meth camps and heroin camps. I was offered a lot of beer, but no one ever offered me meth or heroin, I have to say. And there's a lot of mutual aid that goes on within the camps, high degree of, of cooperation. There are also folks who live uh, at a distance from the camps. They, they want their privacy. And one, one fellow in particular who's profiled in the book, Charlie, he had, he'd been living there for 15 or 20 years or so in different locations, but he was very typical of the woods dwellers. He was white. 
Most of the population is white. The minority homeless people in, in that region tend to be in, this, in the cities. It's more dangerous for them to be in the woods. Charlie was from a, a rural background. And so living outdoors was within his comfort zone. And he and others I talked to would say that they would just feel claustrophobic if they had to live in a four-walled environment with a roof over their heads. Charlie had a pretty good setup in his compound. You know, he had the flat screen TV, several generators, his solar panels. He had a guest tent. He had sofa set in his open air living room. People dropped by quite regularly to chat. He was quite gregarious, but, you know, he wanted to, wanted to have his privacy. And what else did he have? An inflatable swimming pool to do his laundry. He had rabbit hutches, a whole range of amenities. He was fitfully employed. A lot of folks are full-time employed or casually employed or work in the informal economy in the woods. Others are incapable of, of keeping to a work schedule because of their mental health challenges or, or addictions. Charlie was, uh, he fixed up old bicycles and customized them, retrofitted them. And he made a, a living that way or through scavenging. And his, his compound was kept scrupulously clean. It's not the case with everyone living in the woods. And I tried to chart his network of friends, some of whom were very, very close and, and went back 10, 15 years or so. These are the kind of camaraderie or relationships that would perhaps not have formed under other circumstances, but in the woods, they made sense. And again, what really struck me was the high degree of mutual aid involved. If you, if you needed anything or wanted anything, you just had to ask someone. They would, they would have it or they would know where to get it, whether it was services, goods, or information. I don't mean to romanticize those communities. There's obviously a lot of predatory acts that are manifest on a, a daily or weekly basis. But in the best of circumstances, I think there are, there are lessons to be learned from communities like that, living under those circumstances and sort of making do. So there are other case studies in the book, but I think that was the highlight of my reporting. Uh, absolutely. And I'm glad that you you touched on not only this, this that more specific case study, but that role of, of community and mutual aid, because I think that's something that we may return to in, a, in the next question around different ways that folks are, are organizing or working individually or in collective to either manage their lives and their housing conditions or make broader changes. So I think we'll, we'll, we'll return to that towards, towards the end. Another, another one of the case studies that comes up in the book, one of the voices is from a person who's at the time working part-time for Disney while living in a motel long-term with her family. And so she says at one point, quote, Disney is a company that gives its workers advice about how to apply for food stamps. So that has to tell you something. So can you shed some more light on the role of, of labor and wages as an integral component to the housing crisis in Florida and or across the country as a whole? And in particular, as the way that the promise of jobs and job creation is often used as a way to tout or sell large scale development projects, whether it's in, in Florida or across the board? Yeah, it's a good question. Disney World is, you know, the biggest employer in the region, and it's largely a union employer and is in a position to, you know, set the wage floor for the region as a whole. And we're talking about the tourism and hospitality industry here, which is actually the fifth largest industry in the country. And, it, you know, notoriously a low wage industry, but there are always jobs. You know, Disney's always hiring. And so people do flock to the region as a result, because at least they, there is a prospect of a job. How they end up in substandard housing or homeless is part of the, the puzzle here. 
not so much of a puzzle, but I try and profile the journey that leads to that destination. And in particular, what I tried to do, there's a whole chapter devoted to tracking the impact of a Disney World ticket price on the economy of the region, and especially in the labor market and how that affects housing. There was a, a very successful campaign on the part of the Disney unions to get to $15 minimum wage. And 2017, that was successfully concluded. I cover that campaign in the book. It was a 50% increase on the previous contract. So it was a big hike. No one thought they could get there, but for all sorts of reasons, including of course the national movement to get to 15, they were successful and it was a big win. And the year afterwards, actually, Florida voters passed a resolution, a proposition, statewide proposition enforcing a $15 minimum wage. So it had a, had a big consequence in the state as a whole. The tragedy of the fact is, though, as I discovered, $15 just won't close the housing gap. Even in Osceola County, which is, again, a very uh, relatively poor ca- county, poorest in the region. At the time that I was doing my reporting, you would need at least $19 an hour to afford a small studio apartment. So minimum wage, I mean, just yet another illustration of why we need to start talking seriously about living wages and not minimum wages, living wages that are tied to, you know, local costs. There's a contract negotiation going on currently, and if it follows the example of what happened in Disneyland in California, there'll be a much smaller increase in that minimum wage in the next contract. And I don't think they're going to get to $19, but uh, that was a few years ago, the $19 benchmark. It's much more expensive now, as we know, because of the rise in rents and prices. So could Disney be doing more? Can we expect corporations to do more in the way of generating housing options, affordable housing options for their employees? That's a good question. And I tried to deal with that in the book. I'm not sure if we want corporations to be in in charge (laughs) of providing affordable housing. That wouldn't be a a very reliable source at all. But some of the big tech companies on the West Coast have risen to that challenge. The large service sector companies like Disney and Walmart, we don't expect them to do anything about this problem. And maybe unions that are in the position to put housing options forward on the bargaining table can make a difference. But that I think that's certainly going forward, that's certainly an option that should be considered. And that that for me makes a lot of sense. And so if we're right to believe, which I believe we are, that generally corporations are not the entities that we should be thinking to rely on for the provision of affordable housing, let's transition and think about the role of the state and the government more broadly. So One of the ways I, and I think many other organizers and advocates understand both poverty and housing insecurity are as expressions of of intentional policy choices. So can you speak a bit towards the role of the state, either locally in central Florida or nationally in the role of affordable housing policy and what creates the subtitle for the book, uh, The Failure of American Housing? It's not just a a problem in Florida, but there are 37 states. Florida is one of them. There are 37 states that, that have preemptive laws that prohibit rent control. And other tools that might be available to planners, like inclusionary zoning and so on and so forth. And with all the best will and the best intentions, local planners in jurisdictions that are either urban or suburban, they can be overridden. 
and preempted at the level of the state legislature. And that's, a, that's one of the biggest challenges. I do try to chart a lot of the efforts on the part of county planners to address the, the housing crisis, but there's limits to what they can do. They can very easily be preempted. Even in an emergency type situation, which we've seen in the pandemic, there is a clause in, in a lot of preemption laws that provide exceptions in the case of emergency circumstances. And you would think the pandemic would, would actually qualify, but it, it ain't working. There are actually 44 states that have preemption laws at the state legislature level. In a place like New York State, where rent control is not prohibited and we don't have preemption, it's easy to imagine that, that things could be a little different. But if you're in a state like Florida and most states in the country, that is a big problem. And so that goes far beyond the local level, local state level. Of course, the federal government is in a position to offer comprehensive solutions to the housing crisis. It's the only entity that could do so. But of course, we know that gridlocked, intensely gridlocked, and is not in a position to offer these comprehensive solutions right now. Absolutely. And so thinking for me about the role of the federal government, and there are some comments recently from the HUD secretary, the Department of, of Housing and Urban Development, who was speaking on the topic of affordable housing. And I'm paraphrasing, but essentially framed the issue as stating the federal government doesn't have the means or the resources to create housing options. And so the only way to do so would be partnering with the private sector and making it profitable for the private sector to create housing. Um, and so that for me leads me to, and we touched on this a bit earlier, but in, in some segments of the housing discourse nationally, but maybe especially in urban spaces, the problem of the housing crisis gets boiled down to the question of housing supply and demand. And in that framing, the solution becomes empowering and facilitating developers, either through deregulations or tax incentives or a combination of those to build more and to be able to build more, of course, at a profit. So in your experience, how much does the supply and demand question factor into the housing crisis impacting Central Florida? I think you'd have to count me as a skeptic in that right there with you. James. For sure, there are, there are parts of the country where there, there is a shortage of housing units. There are also many parts of the country where there is not. I mean, New York City is a case in point. I read an estimate recently that there are as many as 300,000 vacant housing units in New York City. For one reason or another, whether it's speculators or, uh, or otherwise, it's not a question of lack of supply. And it, actually, in central Florida, the equivalent are the vacation homes. Osceola County brands itself as a vacation home capital of the world has a huge concentration of vacation homes that are a lot of the units are lying empty for much of the time on any given night while you know people like Charlie are sleeping under the stars in the woods. In New York right now, there are more Airbnbs on the market than there are rental units. You know, housing markets are very local. No such thing as a national housing market. And for sure, there are, you know, some shortages in certain areas, but in others, not, not at all. The problem is not supply, I think, James. The problem is a mode of delivery. We continue to, and when I say we, it's the sort of government consensus or the elite consensus that somehow if we throw a little more sugar to developers and to private builders, then they'll step up and fill that gap. Well, this has been the formula for the past 40 years or so, ever since the moratorium on public housing. And it, quite frankly, it hasn't worked. It hasn't even remotely 
come close to working. It's been a chronic failure. And to imagine that there are a range of additional subsidies that upping low-income housing tax credits or other forms of subsidy, Section 8 vouchers, there's a whole range of them, as you know, out there, is going to close that gap is pretty crazy to me. Until we have a significant mass of non-market housing out there, I don't think we're going to see a significant difference in the spiraling of rents and prices. And I, I didn't, I didn't go into this study, you know, with a particular bias. I tried to be really agnostic and and base my conclusions on, on what I found. But even even at the local level in Osceola County and in Orange County, for example, which is the more populous county just to the north of Osceola and contains Orlando. Orange County put together an affordable housing commission that recommended, you know, tens and thousands of new affordable housing units over the next 10 years. Not enough, but, you know, a significant chunk of housing. But they mandated that the existing mode of delivery, in other words, through the private market, had to be observed. There weren't going to be any alternatives, no public housing, no social housing. They were going to continue using the old formula, which which absolutely is a recipe for failure. So that's kind of where I, where I ended up, including that from my own experience on the ground and in the field. And I think that's a powerful conclusion to see borne out again in spaces outside of the more traditional urban context where we're seeing these obviously in many different manifestations, but the crunch of the same housing housing crisis, right? And so there may not be a, a national housing market, which I agree with, but we are seeing certainly a national housing crisis that's impacting regions across urban, rural, suburban. And in many ways, I, I would agree that that piece around not having a substantive non-market sector is one of the key components that we're, we're stuck in this formula. And so that that leads me to, to kind of maybe return back to, to folks like Charlie or communities that are living unhoused or informally, right? So many of the folks you connected with throughout this book are facing severe insecurity in their housings in their housing and in their livelihoods. So can you describe any of the sort of community organizing or advocacy efforts happening to either help people's material conditions or affect some degree of collective change around the housing crisis in Central Florida? I think if you live in places like New York, as we both do, and many of the listeners probably do, you get a, a very partial view of this question because the housing justice movement is going gangbusters in big cities. And especially in a place like New York, recorded quite a number of victories. Also a big defeat recently in Albany that did not move to pass good cause eviction legislation. But that's, you know, that may be temporary, temporary blip, let's hope. <laughs> In, in places like uh, Central Florida, and in fact, most places in America, that, that movement is non-existent. There just aren't housing justice activists on the ground. And a little would go a long way for activists or, or advocates to show up at county commissioner meetings and throw some dust into the works, ask, you know, perfectly justifiable but awkward questions of elected officials who are in the pockets of developers. Just at that level, it, it can make a difference, but it was pretty much non-existent in the field reporting that I did. And, and I think that's the case in, in large parts of the country. Compare that with the, the level of organizing that is done by environmental groups. 
across the country. And certainly that was the case in Central Florida, very well resourced, very influential, has a lot of lobbying power, a lot of boots on the ground. And in some ways, the strategic path forward in, in a lot of regions is to make common cause. And more and more, I think, the more and more environmentalists are taking cognizance of housing issues, especially, especially in regard to how developers operate in the most prized or ecologically fragile areas. And there's a chapter in the book that really does delve into a local case study of this. But yeah, it was surprising to me to discover so little organizing on the ground in this regard. And I would agree that that also feels like like a bias that folks that are living in places like New York or other metro areas, that that part of the movement is so lacking. And I also feel like creates a real opening for organizers, advocates, activists nationwide to step into that void and step into that gap. And as you said, a little could go a long way. And for the the sheer scale of folks that are living on such degree of 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 the of margins, essentially, I think that could that could be a major, major impact. And so for me, that brings me to the conclusion of the book, which might have been my favorite piece as far as uh, as far as the chapters go. And so the book's conclusion is titled Homes for All. And throughout the book and, and throughout part of our conversation, you write that like we as a society or as a body politic really need to rethink housing and steer away from that failed market model that has dominated so much of the housing landscape thus far. So can you leave us with some insight about how we as folks that are connected to the housing justice movement or as tenants and residents can rethink housing, uh, be it through policy mechanisms that may already be underway or other possibilities that might still be working to get off the ground. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you found it useful. It's, it's my least favorite chapter <laughs> because I'm not, really, I'm not really a policy analyst. So it, it, it felt more like an obligation to me, but nonetheless, an obligation that I had to respond to. I don't think there's anything there that would be, that would be unfamiliar to, to people in the movement, in the housing justice movement. There's a broad range of non-market alternatives out there that are talked about and talked up in all sorts of ways, including you know, community land trusts and limited equity cooperatives. And, you know, social housing includes home ownership options, a broad spectrum of home ownership options, as well as public housing. And social housing is a term that doesn't have so much currency in this country, but is increasingly being used and, and being heard in all sorts of quarters. And, and, and I think that's a good thing. And indeed, in the few steps that the Biden administration has taken, to address the housing crisis. One of their promises was, uh, most recently, one of the promises is that they won't be selling off foreclosed housing units to corporate investors the way they did. Uh, I say they because Biden was part of the Obama administration that did precisely that after the housing crash and provided a point of entry for private equity at that time. Instead, they're going to be favoring sales to nonprofit or community developers. And it's a baby step in the direction of social housing policy. We need we need to have these policies at every level. And I know that kind of work is being researched and, and recommended. In regard to public housing, and I mention this because I know that you, this is your domain, James. 
There is a lot of talk about restarting public housing programs. Not much action so far, but a lot of talk in Capitol Hill, which we haven't seen in a long, long time. And I do think that a solution, I mean, a comprehensive solution has to include more public housing. But I do think we we have to approach that in a way that was perhaps different from the past, which tended to be fairly top down. And I end the book with this plea to put dwellers at the center of design and conceptualization of public housing, which again, had had not happened traditionally. There are no cookie cutter households anymore. There probably never were, but households come in all shapes and sizes now. People with different needs, different forms of parenting, different forms of livelihood. A lot of folks are gonna be working from home in the future. We need to have a very flexible range of public housing units. We need a program that is flexible. Yeah, I won't use the word consult because that 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 doesn't go deep enough. It really needs to involve future dwellers, future occupants from the beginning at the design stages. And that's a very exciting idea and prospect. It's it would be fairly difficult to work out in practice, but it seems to me to be something that needs to happen if public housing is to get going again in this country. No, I, I agree. And that's that's in part why I felt that conclusion was so powerful is that not only do we get that kind of plea for public housing, but as you said, putting the residents at the center, which has historically and, and even right up, up until today in, in many contemporary reforms has not been a consideration or one that has actually happened in more than just a nominal way. And for the conclusion as as a whole, outside of thinking about more specific policy, what I really enjoyed about it is that it's prompting us to rethink our political imaginations and really for me puts the onus on on political will and what our social and, and political imperatives are, which as we mentioned earlier with the supply and demand question, those feel like the core crux of these issues rather than it being like a more specific policy conundrum, so to speak. So for me, I thought that was incredibly powerful. With that, Andrew Ross, I really want to thank you so much for being here with us this afternoon. Thanks. Engagement with issues like these form the basis of the classroom experience at the School of Labor and Urban Studies where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast and to subscribe to New Labor Forum or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu.